I really like this little living room scene going on here, you know, with the cookies, and maybe I could put my foot up and just hold the microphone. <laughs> okay, maybe by the four o'clock session, that's, that's where I'm going to be. <laughs> I'm going to be talking to you today about identity in Christ. Last night, we talked about conversion to Christ, and tonight I am talking about, I, this morning, I don't even know what, day, what time it is, I'm talking about identity. I will tell you that my prayer this morning was that I would not say anything that would cause harm. Um, these are difficult conversations. Uh, they're hard conversations to nuance. Um, they're hard issues to take a stand on without feeling like you're literally standing on someone's neck. And so I want you to make sure that like the Bereans, you are testing everything I say with the word of God. And uh, I would welcome when we do the question and answer, uh, if, if you have some things that you need to say that you think I'm really off on here, I, I would welcome you to say that out loud so that as a community of thinkers, we can encourage one another in our discernments um, and our articulation of these hard subjects. So will you do that for me? You can maybe sit there on the chair and have a cookie, I don't know. All right, so this is my talk on identity. I know that I am not the only woman here who feels out of place in church culture. Maybe it is my general Myers-Briggs score, INTJ, or simply the reality that I am a marked woman. Maybe it is that I am much more at home in the world of systematic theology than in the strange and scary territory of baby showers. <laughs> oh, man. And often, I long for just one person in church to understand me. My past as a lesbian puts any number of well-meaning women into a total tailspin. I recall once preparing the wine and bread on the serving platters for the Lord's Supper, carefully pouring the wine into these little plastic cups and then gently placing a very warm loaf of bread on a white cloth. I bake the bread each week for this sacrament in the dark at my home where night and morning meet, and I enjoy this time of quiet assembly hours later in the church kitchen, thinking and praying to myself. Another member of the church was in the kitchen. I think she was chopping chicken for a crock pot. And it was just she and I. And I enjoy the company of women, especially when we can be silent together, working in parallel worlds to build something for God. I have never felt the need to fill the peace of silence with empty chatter. She broke the silence with this question. Is this safe? being alone together in the kitchen? The question roused me out of my silence, and at the same time, it totally baffled me. Let me make this clear, women. Kitchens, like libraries, are the safest place in the world, all right? I mean, unless there's some kind of a grease fire going on, you know, this is, this is the best place in the world. So I had that totally baffled, dazed, you know, look on my face. Um, and then she repeated the question like this. Does being alone with a woman 
bring back feelings for you, those kind of feelings. Well, I felt the quiet chill of isolation creep in. And then I remembered that Jesus is my friend who understands me always and who has a pretty strong history of gathering in women just like me into the fibers of the church. Well, I wanted to flee. You know, of course, as pastor's wife, you can just never flee. May I just tell you that? (laughs) What a silly thing for me to want to do. But I did. I wanted to flee. And then like Peter, I thought, where else can I go? You, Lord, have the words of life. But the blood of Jesus that brings peace to my heart does not bleed immediate mending to community, not without sacrifice, repentance, and change. So what do you say to a question like that? Um, I am sure that there are more sanctified things to think and say than some of the things that come out of my mouth. Um, Don't flatter yourself was what. (laughs) Sorry. Probably not conduct becoming of the pastor's wife. (laughs) Well, I share this anecdote to reveal that I daily long to be understood and represented justly, just as you do. In my church community, I want to do life together, sharing the joys and the ho-hums and serving as general good company for the suffering. Music forms the backdrop of my ruminations. I always wanted to be a music teacher and I just kind of missed that that boat. Um, And so I think of this as obligato, accompanied with harmony, suffering. Obligato suffering. And therefore for me and for you, life experience matters. It cannot and must not be dismissed. It is obligato, harmonious, and it tends to ring in a minor cord. But for the Christian, our life experience is filtered through the grand narrative of the Bible, because written into the book of life, our meaning in Christ precedes our consciousness. Our meaning in Christ precedes, it comes before our consciousness. And therefore, it is with great and serious danger that I wake up to this world, one where both within and without the church, sola scriptura, the Bible alone, the Bible's grand narrative framing my own, is daily trampled by sola experientia, my personal experience alone, framing and shaping and selecting those parts of the Bible that I judge relevant for me. Sola Scriptura puts the hand of the suffering into the hand of the Savior. Sola Experientia makes me the God of my future, and I go it alone. But the Bible is not flat terrain, not controlled. It is not a controlled substance. And how we read truly does shape what we learn. And this morning's talk will address how we use the Bible and personal experience to to arrive at Christian identity. And why identity in Christ alone is crucial to our faith, our hope, 
our witness, and our integrity. But, lest you think otherwise, identity in Christ for every woman in this room demands heroic sacrifices. Since our Christian identity begins with our life in the most personal and lived sense, we must face the fact squarely. Our identity is tied to the fall and to the consequences of Adam's first sin. This means something that sounds unjust. It means that I am not a sinner because I sin, but rather I sin because I'm a sinner, born with a sin nature, because Adam represented me in Eden. We are guilty from conception, Psalm 51 says. We are wholly inclined to evil, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says. And in a small, really peculiar way, I get this. My family of origin was from the wrong side of the tracks. We sort of kid around in my house that um, I married up, you know, my, my husband is related to all of these famous people, and I'm just related to a lot of people named Guido who don't give their last name. <laughs> <laughs> and it was really true, I don't know what to say. <laughs> so my father, who died when I, was, when I was young, he engaged in petty crime until his early death at the age of 53, and my childhood was completely overshadowed by this. So the shadow of original sin, a term coined by Augustine in the fourth century, feels in some ways like an old pair of broken in jeans to me, um, in part because I can stretch out my hand to any childhood flashback and feel the pulse of the sin. But the Bible's take on this shadow of original sin is so much more helpful than my childhood recollection because of the communal aspect of both sin and grace. In an earthly family shadowed by criminal behavior, there is just isolation and shame. And for this reason, the words of the reformers really make sense to me. They call it total depravity. All right. Total depravity does not mean that we always do the very worst thing we can do or that we always sin in the biggest way possible. Rather, it means that we are totally unable to save ourselves from this predicament. Daily, daily, we add to our inheritance in Adam by committing sins against God and our friends. Like me and my dad, even though my dad broke many laws, he only broke my heart when he died and his secrets spilled out. You see, from my perspective, he really wasn't bad, and he was almost never bad to me. I remember him as generous, kind, quite philosophical about grief. I also remember that I loved him, and it was a staggering jolt to learn that to others, he was a crook. To me, he was the dad who loved me. So this unleashing of sin is an all-out war, but we come at it from different angles. We have different perspectives on it, and our point of view tells us a lot about not so much what's really happening, but where we are standing. Um, 
This unleashing of sin is an all-out war, and the way my father's death disoriented his identity was really my first embrace of this reality. But we cannot understand the ramifications of peace through the atoning blood of Jesus unless we first stop to ponder the way that scripture describes anyone, anyone, not in Christ's relationship to God as an all-out war. Indeed, when God sent his only begotten son to become sin on our behalf, God saved us from one thing. We don't like to think about this. God saved us from himself. All right, that's what he saved us from. God saved us from himself, from his justice that would be unleashed upon us. And we simply cannot be Pollyanna about this reality. Psalm 7 records this war. His bow is ready, and arrows will penetrate into the hearts of all impenitent sinners. And the sides of the war seem clear. There are really simply, it seems to me, two kinds of sinners, you know, redeemed ones and unredeemed ones. Because our only access to God is through the mediatorial work of Christ, one hard, hard, through the bloody grace and immeasurable suffering of Jesus, God's fury is now directed at every man, woman, and child who is not covered by that blood. And adding to this is Satan, roaming through the world like a roaring lion. And you know, lions only roar after they've killed. So he's not roaring to say, you know, come out, come out wherever you are. As Russell Moore puts it, the canon of scripture shows us tracks of blood from the very edge of Eden outward. The biblical story immediately veers from paradise to depictions of murder, drunkenness, incest, rape, polygamy, and on and on and on, right down to whatever is happening with you. So the question then is, what is happening with you and with me? See, Christ is not defeated. He sits at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for our sins, giving us the Holy Spirit as comfort in our times of affliction and ruling over this world. But the question hangs heavily, what is happening with you? There are two kinds of sinners, redeemed ones and unredeemed ones. What's happening with me? Well, this is the biblical story, which means it's the true story. There's not always the same link between the real and the true. But this is the true story. The real and the true do not always line up this side of eternity. God tells us that only two items that we hold today will survive into the new heavens and the new earth. Only two things are eternal. The word of God and the souls of people. Clarifies it for us. In some ways, this keeps things simple. Everywhere you are, in whatever situation, only two survivors, God's word and the souls of people. And the fact that we do not live in a biblically literate world simply does not alter that truth. Consider by way of example what the former mayor of New York, Michael Bloomberg, said last week. Some of you read this in the New York Times. He said, I am telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. 
I'm heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. All right. Now, most members of my immediate family would completely agree with this. Um, indeed, Kent and I and some of our children are the only believers on both sides. But this runs, this statement, Bloomberg's, I'm walking right in. I'm not stopping to be interviewed. This runs in direct combat with the Bible's take. According to God himself, we can add sin to the tab already started for us by Adam, and we do. But we cannot add grace through good works to the righteousness of Christ. Let me say that again. We can add sin to the tab already started for us by Adam, but we cannot add grace to, through good works to the righteousness of Christ. The scale of God's justice works against the wisdom of this world. Michael Bloomberg's confident and completely unchallenged declaration that he judges the merits and methods of salvation exposes a socially accepted contempt for God. And let's be clear about this. This isn't just a matter of opinion. This is a socially acceptable <coughs> contempt for God. And we simply in a public way, lack a biblical frame through which to measure humanity. This truancy of a biblical frame, this fugitive and singular worldview from which image bearers of a holy God draw insight and perspective, comfort and knowledge is the root of the problem. The real problem is not gay marriage or whatever else is our burning question but the ramshackled, long-distant, sentimental memory of biblical stories for some and its total amne ad amniasiac absence for others. And this is not a political, social, or justice issue. It is simply a theological one. Indeed, even Christians will have a hard time maintaining a Christian identity in a biblically illiterate world. Biblical literacy embraces these commitments. Reading and knowing what the Bible says for yourself. Reading and knowing for yourself what the Bible says. Understanding and respecting the biblical author's intent. Using the character of God to shape logic frames of hermeneutics. Using biblical terms and defining them in biblical ways. Using scripture to interpret scripture and recognizing that the Bible has the right to interrogate my life, not the other way around. So whose fault is it that we lack biblical literacy in the world? The Democrats, <laughs> the feminists, <coughs> President Obama, the gay rights lobby? No, it is squarely on our head. It is our fault. The blame and the shame is firmly with us, with professing Christians. And because we have failed to place the blame where it rightly belongs, we have produced a number of ghost stories that we tell about image bearers of a holy God. Now I'm gonna shift this talk specifically to the issue of homosexuality. So we're talking about ghost stories now about our image bearers 
who identify as gay or lesbian. So let me share with you some of these ghost stories. And you know what? Everywhere I go, I, I hear them, and I usually meet with people who are just vigilant in wanting to convince me that these are right. And so I don't mean to offend you, uh, but I want you to really think about these. If these are things you hold dear to your heart, I want you to think about whether you've got any scriptural context to really work this one out. So number one, all people who have same-sex desires have been sexually abused. Have you all heard that one? Okay. Number two, all people who have same-sex desires are dangerous to me and my children. Okay. Can't, how can I have, you know, I can't have my lesbian daughter over for Christmas. What will the grandchildren think? That sort of thing. Number three, temptation is a sin. If you have a pattern of temptation and you know it, you are lusting in your heart. Number four, because homosexual practice is a sin, homophobia, the fear and disgust of gay people, is a justifiable emotional response. And this yuck factor, as my pastor friend referred to it to me once, shows that you are really on God's side of the story. Oh, I have people who write to me all the time who believe that. <laughs> okay, number five. People who have unwanted same-sex desires cannot be Christians. Romans 1 proves this. Number six, Christians need to draw the line firmly with gay people. If I have gay or lesbian neighbors, I will want them to know that the biggest sin in their life is their sexuality. And the first thing I must do to maintain a solid witness for Christ is tell them this. If I don't, I'm being a people pleaser. And I'm dishonoring God. And number seven, reparative therapy, the psychotherapeutic process that claims to help people transfer homosexual desires into heterosexual ones is a biblical solution because the problem of homosexuality is resolved by heterosexuality. It honors God, some people believe, when gay people become straight. Number eight, Christians who have same-sex desires have not yet found the right man or woman since God would not make anyone gay. Therefore, it's imperative in the church that we fix up all of our singles. <laughs> all right, now let's go to the flip side of the coin. Because there are only six verses in the Bible that speak against homosexuality, it's really not a big deal. Not worth spending any time arguing over. Kind of like, you know, infant baptism. We just have to wait for heaven to find out who's right and who's wrong on this issue. Next one. The Bible does not speak out against the kind of homosexual practice that today's gay marriage laws seek to protect. When the Bible speaks about sexual, homosexual practice, it's speaking about moral excess, sexual addic addiction, and rape, not loving same-sex unions. And then finally, the six biblical passages that comprise the Bible's negative witness against homosexuality, they have simply been misread and mistranslated. For 2,000 years, we've just been working with bad translations. <laughs> no, you think, I, you know, I've heard everyone and more. I only have an hour to talk to you this morning, so we're keeping this. All right. I hear one or all of these points almost everywhere I go. These are not merely bad ideas. They have become the ghost stories of our day, and they are successful in scaring people away from real faith in a real God 
who sacrificed a real life for your real salvation. Indeed, the gospel road into someone's life is made for simply the most inscrutable of all situations, the most unsolvable of problems, and the most impossible of dilemmas. Sadly, Christians tame this gospel power with heavy-handed moralism and an unrelenting love for the log in our own eye on the one hand and sola experientia and the love of the world on the other. When bad ideas become doctrine, heresy is born. And today, I believe we have three raging heresies about sexuality, distilled in part from the points I raised above. And here they are. Number one, the Freudian heresy. Okay. In the 19th century, Freud replaced the Christian soul with the idea of sexuality and sexual identity. Now, let me tell you, that was quite explicit. This was not a kind of accidental attack on, on the Christian faith. For Freud, feelings were not just unwanted or arbitrary. They were forms of truth. And after Freud, personal experience has become a form of what we call in philosophy epistemology, a way of knowing truth. Many Christians take Freud to heart and to raise awareness in the church and the world. Some Christians with unwanted same-sex attraction call themselves gay Christians and encourage others with shared feelings to do the same. So I'm going on record calling this a heresy. Number two, there's a revisionist heresy. So the first one is a kind of epistemological one. Second one is a revisionist heresy. It attacks the inerrancy of scripture. Exegesis, starting our biblical interpretation with what the biblical authors intended says this group, is simply an outmoded hermeneutic and does not take into account the 19th century invention of sexual orientation, an invention as revolutionary, says one author, as the telescope. When the Bible declares homosexual sex a sin, it simply does not speak truth into today's situation. All right. And the third heresy I make no friends, by the way, when I give talks like this. I just should let you know. <laughs> the third heresy is the reparative therapy heresy. Since homosexual sex is sinful, then this must mean that heterosexual sex is without sin. You know, one of the things we need to realize is that Freud's invention of sexual orientation probably did more to create sin among heterosexuals than homosexuals. And I hear people say this to me all the time, oh, my daughter is a lesbian. How much I wish that she was just a prostitute. How much I wish that my son, who is gay, was just totally addicted to pornography. You know, then I could talk about it in church. I mean, for real? For real? OK, so the invention of sexual orientation as a, you know, unmitigated bar of truth has, I think, done more to hurt and rage sin among heterosexuals at this point, than homosexuals. I'm not a statistician, so I've, you're like, oh, good, English majors should really you know, prophesy about those kinds of things. But I see it. I mean, as a pastor's wife who does a bunch of counseling, you know what, if you just want to go with what folks talk to me about, it's not been helpful for anybody. 
So the reparative heresy, since we are all sexual beings, the church should support reparative therapy as a way to help people transfer homosexual desires into heterosexual ones. God wants you to prosper and be happy after all. So I think the heresy of, of, of reparative therapy is the prosperity gospel. Sexual orientation is indeed a 19th century neologism. That means a new word that created a logical frame of thinking. You know, like a roadblock in the road, can't, gotta find some way to live with it now, not going away. Um, although we know from literature and history and scripture that people have had homosexual desires and relationships from the beginning of time. So to say that, that it was invented in the 19th century doesn't mean that the feelings were. Orientation, though, is a big word, and it refers to personal identity. It describes how the frame of your consciousness is oriented, tuned, set up, aligned. In the 19th century, when Freud replaced the idea of the soul with the idea of sexual identity, a new version of humanity was born. But this new Freudian version of the measure of man is simply not a scriptural one. Nonetheless, the world in which we live, in the world in which we live, sexual orientation is gospel. And we need to unpack its implications. So number one, can someone struggle with unwanted same-sex desire and be a faithful believer in Christ's atoning work? Can someone struggle? Thank you for nodding your head. Yes, yes, because Jesus was tempted in all things, and so are we, all right? Temptation is not a sin. Now, I'll talk later. Temptation is not a sin, but what you do with it may be. So don't be careless with it. You know, don't, don't make it a house pet. You know, buy the collar and a leash, call it Fido, think it's not going to eat you alive. But number two, can someone unrepentingly embrace and deny a sin, homoerotic lust, allowing it to flourish and root as a sexual practice and or personal identity, and then add Jesus to this identity and call it the Christian faith? No. Why no? Why isn't this no an example of the homophobia I've been railing against in its rejection of the idea that the individual and that individual's personal experience sets the terms of sexual identity? What about people whose gender identity is clearly liminal? Are people who perceive themselves to be born with a deep and abiding, unrelenting, fixed and permanent sense of gay identity and selfhood? For me, as my life would suggest, sexuality was fluid. I mean, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't, right? But that's simply not the case for everybody, right? So is the gospel giving up on a whole group of people? The Bible offers two <laughs> distinct words that shape our understanding of homosexuality. But today's Christians often collapse the two or fail to define them accurately. So we need to look now at the difference between temptation and sin. When I talk about temptation, this is what I mean. 
an outside force orchestrated by Satan. We know that God does not tempt, James 1, 12 to 15. We also know that Jesus was tempted, but he did not sin, Hebrews 4, 15. Jesus used an ordinary means of grace to flee Satan's temptations without sinning. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, he could have done something totally extraordinary. I mean, he could have done something godlike, but instead he modeled for us what we could do. He used the word of God. He gave us a brotherly example. How loving. How loving. This is recorded for us in his post-baptism, post-fast desert experience recorded in Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Satan tempted Jesus to turn stones into bread, hurl himself from the pinnacle of the temple, and worship Satan. And each time, Jesus used this ordinary means of grace, scripture, to defend himself. Why? Why did Jesus use something that we possess and something extraordinary? Why didn't he use some God-infused gift? Well, I think he did this to show his mercy to us and to show that in his mercy, true sufficiency is in scripture. But let's be clear about what the use of scripture did. Did it give him a meal? Did it take away the pain of his isolation? Did it change his circumstances? You know, let's be clear about what he accomplished and what we accomplish when we use the word of God as our sufficient means of attack. He also did this to show something important about the nature of temptation. Now, I think this is really important. Here's it, here it is. It's not about you. <laughs> I mean, just go figure that. You did, you thought it was personal. It's not about you, that's right. Temptation is not about some essential truth about us and therefore should never become a moniker of identity. Temptation is about Christ, it is about warfare, and it is about our allegiance to Christ in this war. And again, to quote Russell Moore, he's got a book called Tempted and Tried. I strongly recommend it. To quote from that book again, temptation is so strong in our lives precisely because it's not about us. Temptation is an assault by the demonic powers on the rival empire of the Messiah. And that is why conversion to Christ doesn't diminish the power of temptation, as we often assume, but it only ratchets it up. So making an identity out of temptation, saying this is the kind of Christian I am, it's like putting on the opposing team's jersey at a ball game. All right, how's that gonna work? It's foolish, it's deceptive, and it's harmful. And if you are in Christ, you are not to do that. I don't care how clear you think you're being. Sit down and have coffee with me and tell me the whole story. No labels. If temptation is not a sin, then, well, what is sin? Right? Because we still have that one to deal with. 
G.K. Chesterton makes sin analogous to a rhinoceros. And he says this, if a rhinoceros was to enter this restaurant now, there is no denying that he would have great power here. But I should be the first to rise and assure him that he had no authority whatsoever. Like a rhino, sin has power without authority. And it can bully and sucker punch the strongest Christian into doing its bidding. The Bible generously records for us how heroes of our faith have fallen through the floor of temptation right into sin, in part to show us that God's grace is ever available to a believing and repenting heart. Again, temptation is not a sin, but what you do with it may be. Temptation clobbers from the outside, not the inside. The Bible tells us that when temptation has taken root in our heart and when it takes on a life and an agency of its own, even if we are not acting upon it in a sinful way, we are dealing with an indwelling sin. And the Bible's only solution to sin is repentance. And through the blood of Christ, what John Owen calls the mortification of sin. We're very tolerant with our sins. We're very tolerant with our sins. Not with other people's sins, mind you. We're very intolerant of other people's sins. We're very tolerant with our sins. One of my favorite Puritan authors says that we are to daily wage an irreconcilable war against our choice sins. I don't see this today. You know, I was raised Catholic, and I love the story of Dorothy Day. When I was little, I wanted to grow up and be Dorothy Day. And, um, you know, I hear a lot about the dangers of works righteousness, but I want to tell you something. We live in a world, a Christian world, of excuse righteousness. I'm longing for a little works righteousness just to get us, you know, the blood flowing again. We can't add any righteousness to what Christ has done. But making excuses is taking, uh, is taking us to even a lower level of problems here. One very difficult aspect about sin is that my sin never feels like sin to me. All right? I've gotten in trouble for saying this before, but I'm going to say it again. If your sin doesn't feel good, you're not doing it right. Okay? <laughs> And you need a coach, you know? And sadly, in this world, you'll have no problem getting one. But if you are deluding yourself that sin doesn't feel good, you know, you're not doing it right. You can pray for my sanctification now, obviously. My sin feels good to me. And it feels like life, plain and simple. My heart is an idle factory, and my mind is an excuse-making factory, and especially when it comes to dealing with the kind of sin that clobbers me the most, indwelling sin. The unrelenting, ever-present kind that never takes a Sabbath rest, and that Paul references for us in Romans 7.17 and 7.20. Romans 7.17. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. And Romans 7.20, but if I am doing the very thing I do not want, 
I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. How gracious of the Apostle Paul to just capture that for us. How gracious. My favorite theologian who deals with indwelling sin is John Owen, and especially his, his essay, The Nature, Power, Deceit, and Prevalency of the Remainders of Indwelling Sin in Believers. I have a little joke that when I speak, I always forget to bring like, copies of my book. Um, I don't know, kind of a twitch, I guess, on my part. But I wish I could just have people have copies of my favorite, you know, like this one. Like, just, you know, put John Owen out there. And, you know. My favorite edition is uh, Justin Taylor's edition because it's, it's written in an updated language. You know, those Puritans needed to save a lot of ink, and so they just never could put punctuation marks. You know, like, it was just... Like, why, right? Who needs that? But I need punctuation marks. I do. I do. I love them. And so this, this edition helps tremendously. Um, John Owen's work is divided into three parts. Part one, the nature of indwelling sin. Part two, the power and efficacy of indwelling sin. That's the longest part by far. And part three, the effect and the strength of indwelling sin. Every Christian needs to have this as part of her arsenal. I mean, everybody, you just, you just, you know, I'm sorry, I'm an English professor by training. I'm just so used to telling people what to read. You have to read this book. You know, you just have to. You can't go on without reading it. It's that important. We live in a Christian world that's lacking discernment, and we're part of the problem, and I'm helping you with part of the solution. Pray for me. You just keep praying for me. This is a book to read slowly and prayerfully. It disarms as it explains the unexplainable. How can I be a new creature in Christ and have sin dwell in my heart? How can my mind be redeemed and yet still I struggle with this fallen nature? How can I pray fast and pray over decades and still wake up to the same old me with the same old sin? As Chris Lungard puts it, Sin can be like trick birthday candles. You blow them out and smile, thinking you have your wish, and then your jaws drop as they burst into flames. So how do you fight an enemy that has climbed over the wall and is now in the house? Okay, here are some of the things that Owen says to the question, how do you fight an enemy that has climbed over the wall or broken through the front door and is now in the house. Number one, you starve it by feeding deeply on the word of God because sin cannot abide in the word. So number one, you starve it. Again, don't make it a house pet. Give it a nice little bowl and feed it. You starve it. Fill your hearts and mind with scripture. You know, this is one of the probably the millionth reasons why I am a psalm singer. Because I want to be like those old saints in my denomination who in their 80s, when they can't see anymore, they've memorized a whole book of the Bible. Because that is what they have sung for decades. That's where I want to be. Number two, this is back to fighting the enemy that's jumped over the wall and is now in your house. Number two, call it what it is. Right. Now that it's in the house, don't name it Fido and buy it a collar and leash. You can't domesticate sin by doing so. Don't make a false peace. 
Don't make excuses. Don't get sentimental about how long you and this sin have been bellying up. So many Christians do this. You are not helping yourself or anyone else. Yes, the effects of sin take on both a physical and a moral fallenness in our life. But make no mistake, lust is a moral issue, not a natural one. Sexuality, you know, and folks, I've been on both sides of this camp, so I feel like I get to say this. Sexuality is always fallen. Sam Alberry says it very succinctly. He says, we need to be clear, not just that we are all sinners, but that we are all sexual sinners. You know, the, the church has really gotten that, that wrong. You know, too often we try to resolve, you know, pornography addiction by recommending that the perpetrator get married. You know, that is really, yeah, well, and you know, you know, you know that happens. I mean, I, I talk to women all the time who are the victims of that. All right, so we are not just sinners. We are all sexual sinners, gay or straight. Sexuality and sin go together like peanut butter and chocolate. So third thing you do, how to fight the enemy that has jumped over the wall. Number three, mortify it. Sin is not only an enemy. It's really interesting that when Paul starts to talk to you about and me about indwelling sin, it's no longer just an enemy. He calls it enmity. Totally different word. Enemies can be reconciled, but there is no hope of reconciliation with anything that as is at enmity with God. Anything at enmity with God must be mortified or killed. Those are very, that's very strong language, but you need to know what you're dealing with. Enemy or enmity. Our identity comes and this is key, not from how long we've been struggling with an with a indwelling sin, but our identity comes from being crucified with Christ. Romans 6, 4, therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Indeed, we are all born this way, although what this references may be different. We are all in the same boat. There truly are millions of ways to be broken and only one way to be made whole. Salvation begins with God's sovereign initiation, not with my intellectual assent to a moral framework about normative sexuality or a set of ideas or a desire to be happy. It is a dangerous lie to say that Christians are people who merely believe in Jesus. And I hear this all the time. This is what I'm doing in my life, but I'm a Christian. And I don't know about you, but I don't, you, you got to give me more. You know, you just have to give me more. I'll pray. You can be my friend, but we need to be clear on what that means. What is a Christian? You see, even the demons believed in Jesus and it sent them straight to hell. So one of the lies that we tell today is the lie of easy believism. You know, say the sinner's prayer, drop to your knees, you know, whew, I'm in, congratulations. You know, 
And I think that Christians who encourage people into false conversions uh, are in, in, in very dangerous places. And whole churches who do that are in very dangerous places. Um, so let not many of us be teachers, yes? Um, so the idea that a Christian is merely someone who believes in Jesus, I believe, is the whopper deception of this present age. Everybody's a Christian these days, have you noticed? After God's sovereign invitation, after the Holy Spirit removes the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh, we fall on our faces as we hear the still, small voice of God. We relinquish our lives to him as his sovereign grace commands this. We relinquish all of it and we keep nothing back, and this includes our sexuality. We were born this way. We were all born this way. This is what it means to have Adam as our representative head, to have fallen with Adam in his first sin, and to be born with original sin. So how do we hear God? Is it an audible voice? No. God speaks to us through the language of the Bible. The Bible is key. We train our ears to hear the Lord by drinking deeply of his word, his word, his direct word and the theological principles that emerge from it, not the themes of Christianity that we create, because we like them, but his word. Nothing that we create will have the power to save, discern, and sanctify. All right, that's reason number 527 for why I'm a psalm singer. All right, not one thing that we have created will have the power to save, discern, or sanctify. Not one creation of ours will come close to the sharp edges and the sanctifying blood of our Savior. We commit our lives to the Jesus of the Bible, the Word made flesh, who came to fulfill the whole law of God, every jot and tittle. We do not use our own personal experience to verify the validity of God's commands. The Christian faith simply is not a pragmatist's paradigm. We die to the old man or woman and we, come up, we become alive in Christ, or we do not yet know him. Do we still have indwelling sin? Yes. Yes, we do. But we're fighting the war right up here. He is the potter, we are the clay. In sanctification, we do work with God to grow in a likeness of Jesus. And we do this by understanding that while we are to, quote, work out our own salvation in fear and trembling, unquote, we can only do this because it is God who works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure as it says in Philippians 2, 12 to 13. We grow in sanctification by drinking deeply of the means of grace that God gives us. Bible reading, worship, taking the sacraments. We embrace church membership, fellowship with other believers, and the perseverance of the saints for community and accountability. And in so doing, we take our place as rightful sons and daughters of the King himself, we do not look to ourselves to see if we measure up, because we don't. And that's the point. We look to Christ. When Jesus died and rose again, he gave sin a mortal blow. Thomas Brooks compares, this, compares our sin to a tree that has been cut to the root. The tree may pop a few leaves, but its inevitable fate is death. And so too we see our sin. It no longer comes at us with full potency. It is a lion, but its jaws are wired shut. Sin may sucker punch us, but never slay us, because Christ gave sin its inevitable death. This is cosmologically true. 
no matter how weak I am in my sin. We grow in sanctification in two directions. We grow in humility about the power of sin to overwhelm us. And we grow in Christ's power to conquer it. And both count as growth in Christ and growth in grace, humility and victory. And this is how Christ heals us from the consequence of our sin, whatever that sin may be, by giving us union with him, by giving us victory over it, and by never divorcing us even when we fall and are weak, and by giving us himself as an example. Christ did not die all at once upon the cross, so also the slaying of sin is gradual in the souls of saints. Sexual sin, and that's also from Thomas Brooks, sexual sin has many tendrils, but by Christ's stripes we are healed. He pours the supernatural balm of Christian victory into the grooves of our sin patterns, our body memories, until the holes are filled up with his grace and until attacks and seductions no longer stop us in our tracks. And that is what it means to be a new creature in Christ. That is what it means to be a Christian. We need to put the sinner's prayer away. It has not helped anyone's discernment and has led a lot of people into a false assurance. So God separates us under the gospel to, I told you I'd make lots of friends in this talk, didn't you? Like, wow, I can't wait to hear what she says about community. Does she talk like this at her dinner table? <laughs> no, we'll get there, it gets better. God separates us under the gospel to reveal his son in us. Recognizing that God gave us our will, we put our will on his altar. We use God's vocabulary and God's dictionary. We call sin, sin, no matter our per what our personal feelings are on the subject. And we call grace, grace, and we drink deeply from its well. We are God's image bearers, and we encourage other image bearers to spend more time looking at the original than at its reflection. We do not domesticate sin by calling it something else. So am I healed? Yes, my life bears the fruit. Am I changed? Yes, by his blood. But heterosexuality is not the solution to homosexuality or some proof of gospel conversion. Holiness is. And sexual holiness has two biblical manifestations. It has marriage and it has celibacy. Marriage is a high calling, but it is not a higher calling although you would not apprehend this from looking at the culture of our churches. Indeed, the church has become just like the world on this issue. The world declares sexual activity the hallmark of adulthood, and the church concurs only declaring you need to get married first. And this is no so small problem. It leads not only to a landslide of sexual sin within Christian marriage, but also, as we will discuss tonight, it weakens our Christian community by using the wrong biblical model for it. Our churches are often not communities where all believers partake in the same inheritance, but instead are lonely places with social caste systems, married and single. The reality of this loneliness and the confusion of what celibacy is has created a culture of widespread confusion about the root of sexual healing from both within and without the ranks of the historic Christian church. Christians are not better people. Christians are not nicer, prettier, smarter, or kinder. As I've said last night, my lesbian neighbors are great parents, and I love them, and I respect them. But 
Can a person retain an unrepentingly gay personal identity and claim Christ's headship, lordship, and salvation? Is the 19th century invention of sexual orientation as a category of human identity all that powerful that it separates you from the identity in Christ? What about the use of the descriptive adjective gay to modify the noun Christian? Hey, that's just, you know, semantics. Who are we to argue with the use of descriptive adjectives to modify nouns? Well, I'm an English professor and I argue with that all the time because the linguistic purpose of an adjectival modifier is to change the noun it modifies, okay? That is what you are doing when you feel like you need to tell me what kind of Christian you are. You are changing the concept of Christian. A descriptive adjective changes the noun. That's its job. And basically what it says is, Holy Spirit, don't you touch me there. That is off limits to you. Don't go there, people. These are not small matters. When Jesus calls us to come unto him, we are to bring all of us. We are to keep nothing back. All that we have, all that we are, and all that we claim is to be crucified with Christ. What is in a word, you might ask? Everything. <coughs> Jesus is the word made flesh, and all power is in the word. So identity is not up for grabs. Personal identity is not a morally neutral category, not for anybody this side of heaven. Christ will have all of us, not part of us, and we will struggle with all manner of sin and temptation in this world. And temptation does not disqualify us from Christian service. But if we allow temptation to flourish and root into a manipulating indwelling sin, blame God for our lust because he made us this way, and then declare that we can only be of good use to him if he gives us over to it, we are being petulant children, engaging in an almost satanic form of self-pity, not Christ confidence. I know, because I have prayed the prayers of a petulant child, demanding what I ought not have, and then blaming God for my lack. God will not hear this. Self-pity is the furthest thing from Christ honoring prayer. So what then is the Christian response to our family and friends in LGBT relationships and community? Well, let's turn to Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he the Father chose us in him the Son before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Recently, someone said this to me, Rosaria, give up this ministry. It is dangerous and unnecessary. Those people are going straight to hell anyway. I think that was in my homeschool co-op too. I know people always wanna know, like, where do I hear such juicy things, you know? But I believe that God's elect people are in the gay and lesbian community also, and that changes everything. Ezekiel 37.3 puts at this point in terms of a question. Son of man, can these bones live? What about your bones or mine? Were they somehow less dead? Do we remember the humbling moment when we first knocked at God's door, standing there as the crucified thief? And to this you might say, Rosaria, if God's elect people are in the gay and lesbian community, why aren't they rushing into our churches saying, how can we be saved? Why instead do we see whole branches of the Christian faith rejecting orthodoxy for revisionism, domestic the sin of homosexuality and declaring a false peace? Dear Christian, 
Is it possible that we are perhaps in no small part to blame? Homosexuality is a sin, but so is homophobia. And what is homophobia? The unrestrained fear of gay and lesbian people and the wholesale writing off of their souls. Indeed, if you put any credence in the Freudian category of sexual orientation, you are unwittingly embracing homophobia. We do not have a sexual orientation. We have a soul orientation. And heterosexuality is fraught with the same problems. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overcome you, but such that is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Now think about this. What if the way of escape for our brothers and sisters in the LGBT community is your house or mine, your church or mine? Is the door open? Are we good company for the suffering? Do we secretly harbor the heresy that people's world-defined identities overpower God's imprint of his soul upon us? Are we willing to speak the truth in love across the long haul of unconditional friendship? Do we not want to rock the boat with gospel truth, or do we only want to rock the boat, reducing people who do not yet know Christ into stereotypes to mock and despise? Are we afraid of breaking our hearts on the rock as we shake the gates of heaven in prayer? So as I've tried to suggest here, I, I am no fan of the, uh, the moniker gay Christian, putting on the wrong team colors and then getting out on the ball field. But you know what? I also have a problem with the adjectival modifier ex-gay. The blood of Christ is too small for this. There are two things eternal, the word of God, the souls of people. And we need to be vigilant with ourselves that our focus is there as we witness and love and pray and worship and do life together. Thank you.